to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio. This is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Oklahoma Watch reporter Whitney Bryan and Oklahoma Watch are suing Ponca City after its attorney refused to release the details of one man's arrest. Whitney, uh, tell us what you asked for and why you wanted it. Well, Ted, I requested an arrest report for a man named Patrick Hansen. He was accused of assaulting his wife in front of a child when he was arrested. Uh, Ponca City Police took him to the K County Jail, where he later hanged himself in a cell. When I asked for that report in July, I was working on an investigation into the state's jail deaths and the role that mental health played in those deaths. So these reports tell us what charges people were jailed for, and they provide a lot of insight into their mental state when they were arrested. Hallucinations, paranoia, you know, were they asking for help, and how did the police respond to that person? And uh, so you requested a number of things. Did you get any of them? Well, I did get a portion of the arrest report that I requested. It had some demographic details about Hansen, um, the charges that he was arrested on, the name of the officer who responded, date, time. You know, it was mostly basics when, where, and who. What was left out was the officer's account of the arrest, which is a vital piece of that report. And why is that uh, narrative portion of that report so important? Well, first of all, it's written by the officer. So it's the officer's personal account of what happened during the arrest, during their response to the the emergency situation. Um, It includes, as I said, details about how, you know, Hanson in this case was acting and what people were telling the officer before he made the arrest, who was present when the officer showed up. Um, you know, the information that he he gathered on the scene. Again, signs of mental illness and substance abuse. That's a lot of what I was looking for in this particular report. But they, they include things like whether weapons were displayed or discharged. You know, was someone threatened um, at gunpoint? Was someone told they were going to be arrested, you know, if they didn't comply before it happened? This is critical for public oversight of police to ensure that these publicly funded employees are responding appropriately to these emergencies. Now, the Oklahoma Open Records Act requires police departments to provide public access to information about how their officers respond to emergencies. And uh, this law doesn't just apply to journalists, right? Any member of the public has the right to take a look at those records. Absolutely. This is really vital to what we do at Oklahoma Watch and what journalists, you know, across the country are doing. But these are public records. They are available to any member of the public, not specifically to journalists. Now, the Open Records Act uh, very specifically says that police have to provide uh, a brief summary of what occurred as it's worded in the statute. Did Ponca City explain why they felt they could withhold that information? Well, I spoke with the city attorney, John Andrew, and he told me that the department doesn't release these. That's just what they do. They always withhold this narrative. Um, He says the narrative that I asked for, um, for Hanson's arrest, 
wasn't brief, though he didn't clarify what he considered to be brief. Uh, he also claimed that the officer's written accounts are protected work product. Again, didn't really explain what that means. And at one point, he actually blamed the computer system that stores those records. However, I've received several arrest reports with those narratives over the years from departments all over the state that use the exact same system. It's actually a, a state-developed system that many police departments use. And this isn't the only time Ponca City has uh, refused to provide information like this, is it? That's right. So other journalists shared similar records that they had received from Ponca City police with me. Um, I started asking around when I heard that this was just their common practice and, and they were never providing these. And that turned out to be true. I spoke to a few journalists who had a similar situation where they were provided the kind of demographic information. The narrative was left out. And something else that's, you know, concerning about this particular situation is that the attorney at Pocket City tells me that at a, a meeting of the Oklahoma Association of Municipal Attorneys, that many attorneys decided this this seemed like it was going to work. So they're going to start withholding those narratives. Now, I personally have not experienced that from other departments, um, only Ponca City so far. But clearly, this is something that's being discussed among other departments, and we want to prevent that from spreading. Oh, uh, for those who, you know, don't know how the news business works. Uh, uh, arrest reports, incident reports, as they're known, are a very common document that reporters ask for every single day, uh, not just in Oklahoma, but in every city and town and county in America. Um, these are the documents that tell us who was arrested and what happened, right? It's a, usually a paragraph or two about uh, why the officer was called and what they saw and encountered when they get there and how they resolved the situation that uh, led to someone being arrested. So um, these, these are uh, routinely dispensed by almost every law enforcement agency in the country. Um, reporters ask for them from every news organization every single day. Um, it, you know, you've been doing this uh, long enough. How often do you request those when you're working on a story? Well, as you suggested, these are probably the single most common request that I make for records and often the first request I make, partly because it's usually fairly easy to get these. Police departments generally accept that this is a, you know, it's a very clear part of our statute. Um, there's precedent to uphold that. And so I don't get much pushback on these generally across the state. So I, re I request these police reports very frequently. And in the case of this this story that I was working on when I requested Hansen's report, just for that one investigation alone, I requested more than 40 police reports for different individuals who died in a jail cell. And I got most of those. And those came with narratives with the exception of Ponca City. How, how often uh, would you say in uh, your career you've asked for an incident report and they've given it to you minus the narrative? I, to be honest, I don't really recall another time where I was provided with an incident report where the narrative was missing. Not to say it hasn't happened before. Um, in some cases, you know, the narrative may be, as you said, you know, it could be one sentence saying, 
we did a welfare check, the person didn't answer the door, so we left. You know, it, it may be very little information, um, but I don't recall another time when the narrative was intentionally withheld from the police report that was provided. Uh, and I'll uh, can confirm that in the 35 years I've been doing this in three states, I have never seen an incident report with the narrative uh, withheld. It's such a a common basic part of public information that it's just uh, hard to imagine anybody would try to make the case that should be withheld. Well, and I would add too that I found it interesting when I made this request to the Ponca City Police Department. They did not just immediately respond with the report missing the narrative. Someone called me and said, we're going to provide you with the report that you requested, but it's not going to include the narrative. They called me before they did this to prep me, which tells me they knew that I was going to object to that. And for whatever reason, felt that they needed to let me know before they sent the report without that document. So they're very clear that this is something journalists especially are looking for when they ask for these reports and that I was probably not going to be thrilled uh, when I opened up the document and saw that that was missing. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can uh, read Whitney's story about the lawsuit she and uh, Oklahoma Watch have filed against Ponca City related to the police department's uh, uh, choice to uh, not supply public records. As requested, you'll find it on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Her latest investigation, a collaboration with State Impact's Beth Wallace, revealed that some teachers who received big sign-on bonuses in the fall have already been told to pay them back. Jennifer, how did this story get started? This was a follow-up to a story that Beth and I did together last summer, um, shortly after this program was announced. There was a lot of concern about some of the um, the ways the program was laid out, and we talked to superintendents and a former education department um, employee who was actually fired over raising some of these concerns. Um, and so we wanted to, I mean, we had the program on our radar, obviously, we wanted to follow up. Um, and so we had um, put in an open records request for data on the teachers once the bonuses had been paid out and um, received that data in December. We set out to just um, really look at the data and we wanted to tell readers who got these bonuses, were they qualified, um, you know, did teachers actually move to Oklahoma for the bonuses? That was a big question I had. Um, and so, um, so yeah, that's, that's how this got started. Now those bonuses were implemented last year uh, by Superintendent Ryan Walters. Uh, tell us about what teachers needed to do to qualify for those. Right. So this bonus program was to really draw teachers back into the classroom. Um, so there were two, you either had to be a new, um, like brand new teacher or like a retired teacher who was returning to the classroom or moving from out of state. So one of the stipulations was that you could not have worked in an Oklahoma classroom last year. That was one qualification that some of the teachers we interviewed misunderstood. Um, they also had to be working in either special education or pre-K through third grade, um, some of the need areas. And then if they worked in a rural or um, high poverty school, they got extra stipend. All right. How much money are we talking about? 
These are pretty large bonuses. They range from fifteen to $50,000. Now, you and Beth uh, found uh, at least nine teachers who had been told by the education department to pay back all or part of their bonuses. Why? Right. So in the process of going through this data, we did find some of these teachers. We went back and forth with the State Department of Education on, you know, why some of these teachers received funds when it didn't appear um, based on the information the State Department had that they were qualified um, or that they met the the stipulations of the program. Um, several of the, so there were three teachers that we interviewed in our story. Um, two of them uh, worked in an Oklahoma classroom last year. So each of them misunderstood um, and thought that, um, you know, by moving schools, uh, one of them that that she would qualify. The other one thought that by obtaining special education certification within the last five years that that qualified her. She also had a supervisor encourage her to apply. Um, and then um, a third teacher that we interviewed um, she has been told by the State Department to pay back part of her bonus, not the whole thing. And that issue is over the years of, of certification. So she says she has five years in the classroom. Um, the State Department is looked at that and says she only has four. They've gone back and forth a couple of times. The teacher says the one of the first year was in a charter school, which should qualify her, but the State Department disagrees. Now, your story led with uh, Christina Stadelman. Tell us about her. Right. So, Christina, um, she's a new mom. She actually just had a baby um, while all of this was happening um, and, and has several other kids. So, big family. Um, she is a special education teacher in the Oklahoma City metro area. Um, and, you know, she was excited to receive this bonus. She's uh, was able to buy a bigger car and, and kind of help her um, because she's out on leave now. Actually did not qualify for the new maternity leave um, because she had changed schools this school year. Um, and so, you know, is, is using the funds um, that she received through the bonus program to support her family during that time. Uh, when she got this letter from the department uh, wanting the bonus back, how did she respond? I mean, she's just devastated, like several of the other teachers we talked to. Um, the demands, they're just, um, they they want the money back by the end of February. Um, they have, the department has told the teachers they're responsible to pay the taxes also. So like with Christina, she qualified for 50,000, but received about 29. Um, but the department wants the full 50 back. So not only the, um, the money that she did have that, of course, she spent because she thought it was hers to spend, you know, that, that she qualified and she was awarded this money. But even the taxes that would be a long difficult process to get those back from from the federal government um, in, in some future tax year. Have policymakers, uh, legislators offered any kind of a response to the problem? Yeah, we've actually seen a lot of reaction to this story. Um, there has been um, a, a lot of outrage um, among lawmakers and and just education advocates in general, um, just saying it's really unfair that they have to pay it back. Um, we have seen both the chairs of the education committee, both the House and the Senate have now weighed in with statements as well as uh, Representative Baker. Um, and th they are saying they uh, 
want the State Department to work something out um, or let the teachers keep the funds. Um, the State Department had some responsibility to verify their information before handing out the money, and uh, some are saying they should be able to keep it. And the the total amount the uh, Department of Ed uh, gave out that's in question here was, what, $290,000? Right, right. And and their budget request was $60 million or so? Yeah, well, yeah, for future teacher bonuses. Now, these are federal funds, so these are outside of appropriated f- monies. Um, but, but as a percentage of the department's budget, uh, it's a it's a very small amount. Sure, and even of this program, I mean, it was 16 million total that they spent um, recruiting these teachers. They awarded over 500 teachers bonuses, and we found nine that, um, and and a few others that might be in question that are, have already received these clawback letters. How how of uh, of the the nine people that you found have any of them uh, taken any kind of proactive response to uh, the letters? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, aside from the initial shock, um, I know one of the teachers has um, been in discussion with her um, union representative to see if there's any um, legal grounds for her. Um, And then one of the teachers also um, just yesterday filed a lawsuit against the State Department and Superintendent Walters for um, breach of contract and defamation. Now, um, how is how is the superintendent responded? So he has uh, responded a couple of times on Thursday after the State Board of Education meeting. Um, he um, responded to our reporting and said that, you know, if the teachers um, had supplied any fraudulent information or, you know, um, that they would be held accountable for that, um, and that the... Um, the clawbacks in this program are necessary in order to protect taxpayers, and it's all working as intended. Um, he, he's he's also come out, um, his spokesperson, uh, Dan, has come out and um, questioned the, um, the teachers, um, called them liars, and, and also questioned our reporting. And... Uh, Dan Islet, the the spokesman that you're referring to, he's quoted in the story. He knew the story was coming. You talked to him. He knew uh, the content of the story before it was published. Did he question any of the accuracy then? No. I mean, he he was very cooperative, actually, and went back and forth with us when we were verifying this data. Um, The spreadsheet that they had provided, um, you know, he said was... Um, it's still a work in progress. And so that there was ongoing verification going on. Um, But I mean, the the fact is these teachers had already received the funds. Um, So to to now come out and say that the the reporting was premature, um, I think it it doesn't really ring true for a lot of folks. Uh, Speaking of things ringing true, you know, Walter's one point was, well, we also have to protect the taxpayers, right? This is taxpayer money. Uh, that we shouldn't be doling out to people who don't qualify. Does that, uh, how does that sit with everybody? Right. That has been his main response. Um, I mean, I think a couple of things we pointed out in the story that some of the qualifications changed as the program was going on. Um, And so some of the participants thought that was somewhat unfair um, to then hold these teachers to such a standard of accuracy when the department itself made some, um, you know, gave some some leeway depending on their qualifications. 
Um, but also a lot of folks are are really looking at this and saying the the true accountability would have been to get it out the door correctly in the beginning. Um, because I think as we've seen with other um, federal, you know, COVID money programs that we've also reported on, it's a lot harder to get it back um, once it's gone out and been dispersed. Um, you know, I mean, these teachers, uh, you know, had financial, um, you know, things that they they wanted. This was a life changing amount of money for them. And, and they certainly, um, you know, most of the teachers I talked to for the story, it, it was spent. Um, so I, I think that's kind of the bottom line for a lot of folks is, you know, we should have the State Department, the state should have um, gotten it out properly to begin with instead of trying to claw it back. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, you can read all of Jennifer's investigative work related to education and this story in particular. You'll find them on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to Jennifer's weekly newsletter, Education Watch. Reporter Whitney Bryan covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch, and her latest story examined one lawmaker's effort to change what some are calling an outdated state mental health law. Whitney, tell us about the law in question and what it does now. Well, this is the law that dictates when someone can be forced into mental health treatment against their will. So these are people who are experiencing mental health or substance use crises, that law dictates when someone can be held for emergency treatment. So that is up to five days. Um, and it's very, um, it's very indicative of, you know, immediate stabilizing care. That's the goal there. But it also um, shows judges the criteria when they can actually hold someone longer term. So that's, we're talking weeks, months, potentially years of mental health care that the person can be committed to. So the criteria provide the guidelines for when someone can be placed in emergency treatment, right? But who's making that decision? Right. Well, there's three major groups of people who are using this guideline, which is essentially kind of boils down to the person being a immediate harm to themselves or others. And those groups are police, first of all, as you can imagine, and as we've reported, you know, many times, people in crisis often are responded to by law enforcement. So police are using that criteria to determine whether they can take someone into what's called protective custody. So essentially they're arresting the person. It's just not for criminal acts. Then the police will take the person to a mental health provider at either a crisis center or a hospital setting. And that mental health provider, the medical professional, will use the same criteria to determine whether that person can be held for that five-day threshold for stabilizing care. And then judges on the back end, they're the ones using this criteria to determine those longer-term stays if it's necessary. Now, critics of the law have said uh, Oklahoma's version of this is outdated. What's in the law they don't like? 
Well, very specifically, the word immediately is used in the entire criteria for the law. There's actually five specific criteria. All of them have the word immediate. Researchers from the Treatment Advocacy Center, they advocate for better mental health laws across the country. They found that Oklahoma is one of only six states that still uses this urgency language. So the word immediate or the word imminent is what they're uh, pointing to there. So that basically what they're saying is that means we have to wait until someone has deteriorated so far as to be right on the verge of injury or even death before someone steps steps in and provides that stabilizing care. So saying, you know, they're saying the window to help people is just too narrow. Now, Representative Jeff Boatman, who's from Tulsa, uh, filed the bill for the upcoming legislative session to change some of that wording. What did he propose? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Representative Boatman actually also proposed a change to this law in 2022, and he simply struck the word immediate from the law, from all five criteria. But the Department of Mental Health said, you know, that broadens it too much. Now we're opening that window a little too wide. So he agreed to hold off on that legislation until some better wording could be developed. So now what he's proposing is is leaving immediate alone. The, The language in the law kind of stays as is, with the added phrase of verifiable, relevant past history. So basically what he's saying is we want people to also be able to be committed for treatment if we can show through documentation, witness statements, police reports, that kind of thing, that they have posed this immediate risk in the recent past. So if someone, let's say, were threatening to hurt themselves with a knife, that would qualify as an immediate threat. But if they put the weapon away and then say, you know what, I think I've changed my mind. Well, now they may not be an immediate threat anymore. And so they would be disqualified from having this care. Well, Boatman is saying with the new wording, we could take into account the threat that they were making moments before, uh, you know, a documented version of that, and that that would allow us to go ahead and and commit them for treatment. That brings up probably the biggest question around this law, which is, you know, how do you balance the safety of someone who uh, has a severe mental illness against that person's civil rights? Well, this is absolutely the biggest concern everyone I've had, um, everyone I've, I've spoken with has had about this law as it exists now and any changes. On one hand, I spoke to a mental health provider who said, you know, it's necessary to temporarily suspend the person's liberties in order to prioritize their right to treatment. We're violating one of their rights over the other, no matter what we do. She brought up the point that, you know, a lot of these folks, they don't even realize that they're sick and need help. That's a a common symptom of serious mental illness. On the other hand, a Department of Mental Health employee, he teaches this criteria to police officers. You know, he said, we are taking this very seriously anytime we take someone's right away, and that should be a last resort. What happens next? Well, session starts on February 5th, so we do have quite a long way to go before we'll know if Boatman's bill gains any traction whatsoever. There's a lot of discussion about how to teach 
interpretation of this law, whether it's, you know, in its current state or whether the new uh, language ends up being passed. So those things are being discussed now, regardless of what happens with the bill. How do we teach this? How do we all get on the same page with what what this means? And so also implementation is going to be a factor in this. If the law changes The idea is more people would get this treatment, which means we would need more beds, more mental health providers to care for those people. So that's something that Boatman is also trying to address in a few of his other bills. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read Whitney's story about Representative Boatman's proposal to uh, change the law about involuntary commitments in Oklahoma. You'll find it on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.